Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. The 60-40 stock bond portfolio has been considered a core portfolio for investors for a long time, and it makes sense that it would be. Stocks have produced excellent long-term returns for investors, and bonds have produced both income and cushioned the blow of bear markets due to their negative correlation with stocks. As a result, the last 40 years has been one of the best risk-adjusted returns of a stock bond portfolio in history. But history also tells us that things aren't always like this. Falling interest rates in the last 40 years have created a tailwind for both stocks and bonds that isn't likely to be repeated in the future. And rising inflation means that the negative correlation between stocks and bonds that investors have counted on may not be there going forward. We have had an opportunity to discuss the future of the 60-40 portfolio with some of the best investors we know on excess returns, and we have learned a lot from their insights. In this episode, we bring them together to help us understand how to think about the 60-40 portfolio going forward and some alternative approaches investors might want to consider. But before we talk about the 60-40 portfolio, it is best to address the major reason why many experts don't believe it will work as well in the future as it has in the past, and that's inflation. We ask our favorite inflation expert, Colin Roach, to help us understand the history of inflation, what drives it, and what that might mean for the situation we're in today. Yeah, so, uh, well, historically speaking, the United States has been, as far as inflation goes, a pretty stable economic environment. So probably about 3% or so average inflation. The only real time where inflation got pretty scary was in the 1970s when we had kind of the big oil shock and you had sort of the stagflationary environment where inflation got up into the double digits. And, you know, one of the really interesting things with inflation is that I'm convinced that nobody really knows exactly what causes inflation and that it actually is so dynamic that it's totally different inside of all sorts of different economies and nobody really knows what that point is where um, there's sort of an escape velocity in a lot of, of inflation environments where you can get to this point where people's faith in, in the, and the demand for money kind of starts to get really slippery where you had, we were close to that environment in the 1970s, but nobody really knows what causes it then to really like rear its ugly head where it starts to go into like a hyperinflation is technically like a 50% plus rate of inflation. And we were talking before we jumped on that a real hyperinflation is an environment where when you walk into a store, the price of those goods and services are probably different when you're walking out of the store. And so we're talking about a super extreme type of inflation and nobody really knows what causes that sort of escape velocity in the price. And so Inflation's a really, even though you can kind of theorize about what causes it, nobody really knows is like, like, it's almost like trying to talk about the, um, uh, like a market panic. What causes the stock prices to go when they start falling, you know, 10, 20% and things kind of start getting scary. What causes something like the financial crisis to occur where you get this like waterfall decline in demand for assets. And it's all sort of psychological, uh, psychological to some extent. And so nobody's theory of inflation is perfect, but at least in the United States, we have a somewhat good understanding of the fact that one of the main drivers, at least in a, in a fiat monetary system, is that when you have an enormous amount of goods and services that are valuable to people, the 
demand for those goods and services relative to the demand for money will be strong. And so what happens in a, a high inflation environment is that the, the demand for the amount of those goods and services, it, it increases enormously relative to the amount of money. Whereas typically when there's not enough money in the economy, you get the inverse, which is kind of the situation that the U S economy has been in for the last 20 years, where a lot of economists argue that there's been like this, um, safe asset shortage where there's literally the demand for money, the demand for act for fi financial assets is higher than the demand for goods and services. So you've had this sort of steady, low rate of inflation. And the interesting thing with COVID was that we, we, we sort of flipped that on its head in a lot of ways where we had COVID created through the lockdowns and some of the, the weird labor shortages and things like that. You had this inverted situation occur in the short term where there's actually a supply shortage of a lot of these goods and services, but at the same time, the government creates, you know, $6 trillion worth of new financial assets. And when that happens, you get a huge amount of demand for fewer goods and services relative to now what is a higher amount of money, higher aggregate demand, lower supply. And so that's kind of the environment we're navigating right now, where you've got this, I, I don't want to say a high inflation, you've got an uncomfortable amount of inflation, um, that people are starting to wonder, you know, are we, are we nearing that point where we could see a 1970s style double digit inflation or worse? But why would we expect stocks and bonds to struggle in an inflationary environment? A look at the different types of growth and in inflationary environments can help us understand that. Resolve Asset Management's Adam Butler explained this idea to us. Yeah, um, it requires a little bit of background on the, the overall framework for risk parity for us to kind of fit 60-40 into it. But if you think about um, portfolio balance or, or diversity, you want to um, have a balanced exposure to all the different types of economic environments that you might encounter. And you can think about economic environments as kind of falling along two different axes. One is, um, are inflation expectations rising or falling? And the other is, are growth expectations rising or falling? And so 60-40 is typically 60% stocks, 40% bonds. So it's just stocks and bonds. And we know for stocks that stock, they're fundamentally designed to do well during periods of um, uh, increasing growth expectations, relatively benign inflation and abundant liquidity conditions. Um, obviously we've had those three legs in place over the last 10 years. Bonds on the other side um, do well during benign inflation conditions. Um, and typically when growth is not dramatically exceeding to the upside, because typically that's a company with inflation and bonds don't like inflation, right? So both stocks and bonds benefited from this kind of relatively um, slow growth environment, but where growth kind of fairly persistently just slightly exceeded expectations. We had benign inflation, which was good for, for both stocks and bonds. And we all know we've had abundant liquidity um, in spades with the, with the Fed and global central banks buying um, well over $100 billion worth of assets a month for years and years on end. Um, at the moment, we're coming into kind of the reverse environment. We've got the, first of all, world central banks removing liquidity. So one leg of the stool is sort of being kicked out from under us. Uh, inflation is no longer benign. We've had inflation CPI prints in the US above 8%. 
year over year. And in other parts of the world, Europe, for example, they're, they're up into the low teens. And depending on how you measure it, sometimes in the mid-20s. Um, and there's some ambiguity about growth, right? Obviously, we had a, a substantial growth shock um, sort of starting around March, April 2020, when the governments around the world injected large amounts of uh, money directly into people's savings accounts, gave them a dramatic amount of spending power, and then they turned around and spent it, first of all, on, on goods that they ordered uh, from Amazon and are now sort of shifting, or over the last six or eight months, it sort of shifted into the service sector. So, um, you know, it looks like growth is kind of the ambig ambiguity here, whether or not we've got gro slowing growth or whether growth is going to continue to come in a little stronger than expected. But two of the legs of the stool that do well for 60-40, this sort of abundant liquidity, that's reversed. And the benign inflation has also reversed. We often hear about the low expected returns of the 60-40 portfolio going forward. But these discussions often omit the details regarding how expected returns are calculated and why they are low. In our episode on alternatives to the 60-40, we look at a framework for calculating expected returns and why we might expect them to be lower in the future than they've been in recent decades. Rates and valuations have changed since we recorded this last year, but the principles still hold true. Yeah, you know, you, you hear this all the time with people like me, people out in the media saying, all right, you know, the 60-40s had these great returns in the past 40 years, but you can expect much lower returns in the future. And so before we sort of talk about alternatives, I think maybe the first thing we should talk about is why that is. So wh why do, should we expect lower returns in the future? And so the way, the way to do that is to sort of break it out into its two components, bonds and stocks. So why would we expect lower returns from bonds in the future? And so there, there's a lot of more complicated explanation behind the scenes, but in general, your return, your expected return on bonds, your best predictor is whatever your starting yield is. So like you mentioned in 1980, you know, you had a yield in the teens on bonds and, and now you have a yield of, I don't know what it is, 2% or however you want to look at it. So what that means is that that is a predictor that's telling us we should expect much lower returns on bonds. And, you know, this is sort of a common misconception people have about bonds. And Corey Hofstein had a really good tweet about this recently on Twitter is this idea that the bond markets, you know, the, the big returns we've seen from bonds since 1980 have been fueled by falling rates. And, and when you really look at that, that, that's not really true because what falling rates are doing is they're sort of pull, you know, you're, you're getting an increase in your value of your bond now, but you're also reinvesting at lower rates for the future. And so what happens is, you know, what's really been determined, what's really determined this return of bonds was the high starting yield, not necessarily the fact that rates fell. And so what that, what that tells us though, is that tells us that we can use the current yield on the bond market as a pretty good predictor of the return we're going to get. So we don't have to sit here and try to predict our rates going to go up or rates going to go down. We can use the current yield and give us a pretty good idea of what we should expect. And, and, you know, that's going to be a below average number. And then, and then on the stock side, you know, over time, you would expect valuations to mean revert. So when you have a period where valuations are much above normal, you would expect you're going to get lower returns in the future as those valuations mean revert. And the same thing on the opposite side. And, you know, we can have a debate as to what we're mean reverting back to, you know, are we mean reverting to a long-term average of where stocks have been valuation-wise? Are we mean reverting to what we've seen in the last 20, 30 years, which is above the long-term average? Or are we, you know, mean reverting to something in the middle? But no, no matter how you look at it, you would expect over time, we're going to mean revert on valuations. And so we should have below average returns on stocks. And so if we're going to have below average returns on stocks and below average returns on bonds, we should have a below average return on the 60-40 portfolio. GMO's Ben Inker also helped us understand this problem when we spoke to him last year. Yeah. Uh, so that is, I, I think, the central problem for investors today. I think if 
the investment heuristics we grew up with in terms of how much you need to save from your salary to be able to retire, how much you need to have as a nest egg in order to retire, uh, kind of the way pension funds and endowments have to work, all of those effectively assumed that a 60-40 portfolio could deliver inflation plus about 5%. And historically, it has done. Um, the problem is, from today, it can't possibly, right? Even if you completely disagree with me on the equity side, and you believe that despite the fact that the U.S. equity market has basically never traded as expensive as we are today, it's still going to deliver 6% real, even if that was true, and it's not, um, you're not going to get 5% real from your 60-40 portfolio because the bond side of the equation isn't going to hold up its end, right? Historically, bonds delivered... Well, actually, since the early 80s, uh, over 4% real, but in the longer run, maybe 1% to 2% plus inflation. Today, they are yielding significantly less than expected inflation. Um, so even if you believe that stocks were fair value today, you're not going to get 5% uh, real out of a 60-40 portfolio. Given what we believe about stocks, which is at the end of the day, you kind of deserve to get the normalized earnings yield or the, the inverse of the normalized PE of the market as an investor, you're going to be really even farther from it. Um, so the bad news is since investors at the end of the day, in aggregate, own stocks and bonds and real estate, and let's oversimplify and say that's about it, um, all of those assets are priced to deliver lower returns than history. So we are in aggregate doomed to get lower returns. Um, that is a bummer because uh, we kind of need the five in order for the math to work out, but just because we need it doesn't mean the market has to give it to us. Uh, so I think the reality is we're going to have to save more uh, than we were taught. Um, we're going to have to work longer than we'd like to, um, and we're going to have less uh, wealthy retirements uh, than, than we've been taught we should expect. If we want to look at what expected returns for stocks and bonds are going forward, there's probably not anyone better to talk to than the person who literally wrote the book on expected returns. Antti Ilmanen's book, Expected Returns, An Investor's Guide to Harvesting Market Rewards, is considered by many to be the Bible on the topic. We asked him about the expected returns for the 60-40 portfolio going forward. Yeah, so let, let me just use use numbers that we use in our capital market assumptions at, at AQR, which which are pretty much like I said, yield and growth, and then then for bonds it's largely yield with some with some roll down effect. So so just for equities, and let's let's use U.S. equities and and bonds as to 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 make this simple. So. In the long run, equities have earned something like six percent real return. But recently, recently the promise was much less. It was like three and a half percent, three point six probably was the lowest that we got from from our our method. That has risen now to four percent. So that you know the cheapening of assets has has improved equities expected real return this year in the in the past six months um, something. So so it's it's added by the way is roughly half from yield and half from growth. You can think of it think of it like that. So, um, so this is for the next five to ten years. It's clearly below average, but it's at least a little better than for, at the trap. And now for government bonds, um, the long-run real return used to be two, two to three percent, and then they went to negative levels for for a long time. It was near minus minus one percent, and now it's mildly positive. Latest was up 0.2 percent real 
um, pretty much like the bond yield minus 2.8% inflation expectations for next decade. So, so when you put those together, you get something, um, something which is above 2% there, but uh, so, so we were clearly below 2%, which was at all time lows and compared to long run average 6040 used to have four or five percent expected real return which just kept coming down for 40 years to somewhere clearly less than two percent and now it has inched its way above two percent so it's 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 better than it was the expected return but it's still pretty disappointing and again i'm, I'm quoting numbers now for the five to ten year forecast so what should investors do in a low expected return environment for many the right answer might be nothing Expected returns tell us very little about what may happen in the next few years, and predicting whether inflation will continue to be a problem longer term is very difficult. But for those investors who are looking for other ideas, we have covered a variety of options on the podcast. One idea is to look beyond U.S. stocks and bonds. Despite the negative outlook for the 60-40 portfolio, a low expected return doesn't mean that the outlook is bad for all assets. Research affiliates founder Rob Arnott reminded us in our 2021 interview that the high U.S stock valuations and low bond yields doesn't mean that opportunities do not exist for investors willing to look beyond the standard U.S. indexes. Well, firstly, take the blinders off. You don't have a choice of U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds, and that's your whole opportunity set. Look at the whole spectrum of opportunities available to you. Um, on our Asset Allocation Interactive website, we provide forecast returns for 130 asset classes out there. Now, we've gone back historically and asked over the last 50 years, the methodology that we're using, how well does it forecast 10-year returns? And it does a pretty darn good job. It tends to be within a plus or minus 2% range on a 10-year return. Well, that's pretty cool. So what are we expecting for U.S. stocks? A little under 2%, slightly negative in real terms for the next 10 years. Ouch, could we do better? Of course we could, if valuation multiples stay right where they are at uh, near unprecedented levels, higher only at the peak of the tech bubble in 2000. Uh, if they stay there for the next 10 years, then you're going to see 2 or 3% real return. If they rise to Schiller PE ratio of 50 or 60, then who knows, you could get even better than that. Um, or they could be much worse than that if there's mean reversion back to historic valuations. So uh, bottom line is we're looking at less than 2% for the U.S. We're looking at about 8% for emerging market stocks using exactly the same methodology and not using heroic growth assumptions, using growth assumptions that are slightly better than U.S. growth, which is, if anything, a little conservative. Now, our work on our Smart Beta Interactive website suggests that RAFI, Fundamental Index, in emerging markets should beat the emerging markets by about 5% a year. Add those together, you've got 13% a year. Now that's before fees and taxes and spending, but still 13 versus two, if you've got plus or minus two as your likely confidence interval, that means you've got a 99% chance of beating US stocks. So I have well over half of my liquid net worth in emerging markets, fundamental index, based strategies. And um, uh, I don't have a committee to report to, although when emerging markets stumble, my wife does start to wonder if, I, if I've taken stupid pills. But um, bottom line is, uh, I look at that analysis and think 99% chance of beating 
60-40, uh, I'm all, all in. Another option is to look at multi-asset class portfolios that go beyond stocks and bonds. One approach is to build a balanced portfolio that is robust to different market environments using risk parity. Adam Butler explains this concept. Well, it actually starts with something really basic that I think everybody's familiar with, this idea of not holding all your eggs in one basket or, you know, some of the, all the ancient texts um, give a nod to this idea of, you know, you should own some of your wealth in land, some of it in currency, some of it in, in loans or that sort of thing. And, um, you know, in the in the mid-80s, Harry Brown published a book on what he called the permanent portfolio, which is kind of hold a quarter of your wealth in in stocks, quarter in bonds, a quarter in gold, and a quarter in cash. The idea that these different investments are fundamentally designed to do well in very different economic environments. And then Ray Dalio in the in the early 90s uh, sort of expanded on this concept and he called it an all-weather portfolio, which later became kind of this risk parity portfolio. Um, and it combined these concepts of diversity with, which is what sort of Harry Brown was trying to get at, right? You want to hold assets that are fundamentally designed to do well in different economic environments with the concept of balance. And so let's, let's get into to what that means. So diversity, just thinking along the two major drivers of uh, asset returns, right? Uh, changes in inflation expectations and changes in growth expectations. So diversity means holding in your portfolio a basket of instruments that are fundamentally designed to do well in all of those different economic regimes. We've already talked about how stocks do well during periods of um, uh, stronger than expected growth, benign inflation and abundant liquidity conditions. Bonds do well in um, benign growth or even maybe lower than expected growth, um, benign or slowing inflation conditions and abundant liquidity conditions. Um, but what we haven't talked about are assets that are fundamentally designed to do well during periods of of um, much larger than expected inflation dynamics, right? So stocks, neither stocks nor bonds are really designed to do well uh, in an inflationary environment. And there are a couple of different types of inflationary environments that we should probably talk about. Um, the first type of environment is the one that everybody kind of refers to in the 1970s, where you have these major supply shocks. Um, in the 1970s, they derived from oil shocks, um, the oil embargo and the deposement of the Shah of Iran, the Iranian war. And um, so that sort of propagated into prices everywhere and lineups at the gas pump, et cetera. And there are a variety of other dynamics that drove inflation rates much higher than expected in the 1970s. And um, in the 1970s, central banks around the world took steps to battle inflation. So they, they, they wanted to keep real rates positive. So they tried to keep the, um, the Fed funds rate and interest rates above the rate of inflation. Um, and what that meant is that they had to keep raising interest rates, which punished bonds. And it also, because it raised the discount rate on stocks, it punished stocks. So stocks and bonds both went down together or did poorly together in real, in real terms in the 1970s. But in the 1940s, late 1940s, early 1950s, as we were coming out of the war, the governments of the world took a very different tact. They said, well, we're going to allow the, the debts from the war to inflate away. And the way they did that was they held interest rates below the rate of inflation. They engaged in what's called financial repression. And that ended up um, allowing stocks to do relatively well because you had uh, low, real, low real interest rates. Um, so they never really encountered this high discount rate, which punished 
uh, equity valuations, right? So there are inflationary environments where equities can do well, um, and then there are other inflationary environments where equities do poorly. Um, bonds don't do well typically in, in any kind of inflationary environment. But what does do well in an inflationary environment is typically commodities. And commodities are vastly underrepresented in most people's portfolios. If you go to the 1970s, for example, a broad basket of commodities um, grew at low teens percent annualized in real terms, and gold grew at high teens per year in real terms in the 1970s. So even a, a, a modest holding in commodities and, and gold type assets would have allowed a truly diversified portfolio to do well um, in that inflationary setting. Um, and we had a similar dynamic play out in the, 19, in the 1940s and 50s. Um, so the other thing that, that governments of the world sort of introduced in the uh, 90s, the late 90s, were these inflation-protected securities. So institutions often protect against inflation by um, investing in securities where the, the, the rate of payment on the coupon of the government bonds uh, increase or are adjusted higher if inflation increases. Um, so they preserve their coupon values in real terms. And that's another way that, that investors can hedge against inflation. But the, so, so just again, just sort of close a loop on this. Um, diversity is the idea of, all, of, of holding all of these different types of markets in the portfolio that are fundamentally designed to do well in very different economic environments. That means owning bonds for the type of uh, economic environments that bonds are designed to do well in, stocks for the same reason, but also owning commodities and uh, treasury inflation securities or break-evens or, you know, there's other more exotic instruments that um, you can use as well. So that's that's diversity. And then the other side of the coin, which Harry Brown didn't really touch on very much, is this idea of balance. And that's where I think Ray Dalio and the forebearers of this risk parity concept really began to um, differentiate. Yet another option is to use systematic approach to identify the macro regime we're in and to try to position the portfolio to perform well in that specific regime. We spoke to 42 macro founder Darius Dale about, he, about how he does this. In terms of like thinking about the world, you know, asset markets are, you know, from our perspective, in terms of the back test that we've done, you know, you know, it's, you know, that spans several decades, you know, going back to the 60s, 70s, pick your asset class. You know, it's very clear that asset markets, the primary driver of dispersion within and across asset markets are changes in growth and changes in inflation. And more importantly, especially in this most recent kind of 12 years or so, you know, how central banks are reacting to those changes in growth, changes in inflation, and more importantly, you know, especially with respect to this market cycle, the level of growth and the level of inflation has to really come into question as well. So it's our job as an investor, and certainly our, our process is really oriented around understanding the trending rates of change of those variables and forecasting the trending rates of those rates of change of those variables in order to identify sort of what regime we might be in. Um, you know, the, in, in, in kind of the best of times, you know, we're what we call Goldilocks at, at 42 macro through the lens of our grid, grid model grid, short for Goldilocks, reflation, inflation, and deflation. Uh, Goldilocks is where growth is accelerating and inflation is decelerating. You tend to have outsized, you know, excess returns and equities and credit, crypto, you know, risk assets in general. Uh, reflation is where both growth and inflation are, are accelerating simultaneously. You tend to have outsized excess returns in those asset classes, including commodities as well. This is where fixed income tend to, tends to have most of its negative absolute uh, performance. Then you also have what we call inflation. That's where growth's decelerating and inflation's accelerating. Uh, you tend to have 
negative, uh, you know, sort of absolute returns and risk assets, you know, the, the performance across fixed income markets tends to be mixed. You know, typically when you're above, you know, call it four or 5% inflation, you're going to have negative absolute returns and fixed income. When you're below that threshold, you tend to have uh, 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 inverse covariance to the equities uh, in that asset class. And then lastly, uh, deflation, that's where both growth and inflation are trending lower. Um, this is about the, the, the asset class. That's the sort of regime where the concept of the 60-40 portfolio really got its got going in terms of the inverse covariance you tend to see in stocks and bonds in that in that regime. And so, uh, understanding how asset markets have historically performed, both on a relative and absolute basis, across some very critical features, including expected returns, percent positive ratios, volatility, and covariance, is really critical and 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 sort of a foundational to how we think about managing risk and constructing portfolios. So again, to kind of summarize, we need to know where we've been and where we're headed from the perspective of that grid regime cycle and ultimately how asset markets have historically behaved through again, you know, expected returns, percent positive ratios, volatility, covariance in order to understand, hey, what are the types of securities, asset classes, factors that will come together in a, in a, in a more, you know, kind of in an elegant way to help take advantage of our forecasts. Finally, using momentum to shift a portfolio among asset classes can be a successful approach. On Validia, we run two models based on the work of Koenig and Keller that take this approach. We explain them in our episode on alternatives to 60-40. Now, kind of coming into something that's a little bit more, um, I guess, complex or active is the protective asset allocation strategy or also known as PAA. And that's uh, based on a paper uh, protective asset allocation, a simple momentum-based alternative for term deposits. And it was um, developed by these gentlemen, Keller and, uh, is it Koenig? Koenig, yeah. And um, the, the basic idea here, I'll take the first part, Jack, is it starts by basically looking at um, 12 different asset classes. So it uses the S&P 500 or large cap US stocks, Russell 2000, NASDAQ 100, European equities, Japanese equities, emerging market equities, long-term treasury bonds, high yield bonds, corporate bonds, commodities, gold, and real estate. And then it basically will look to allocate to the six asset classes that have the best uh, price momentum or price strength. Um, so it's trying to bring you into the top six asset classes um, based on momentum. But Jack, as we were talking about before the podcast, you know, it's there's uh, another sort of aspect to this portfolio in terms of trying to protect capital, which I'll let you talk about. And then there, there are some, you know, drawbacks to this in terms of its activeness and, and such. Yeah, you know, this is for more, you know, active investors. This is obviously somewhat complicated. This is not, you know, a 60-40 portfolio. This is not the permanent portfolio where you're just allocating 25% to four different asset classes. This is an active portfolio that's making changes. But what it takes advantage of is what we talked about before. You know, these all these inflation hedges have their issues. Commodities have really long periods of underperformance. So what this is doing is it's trying to only invest in asset classes that have momentum. And so, like, commodities is an asset class, for instance, that works very well with trend following. So when, when you sort of couple momentum with commodities, you, you tend to avoid some of these long periods where it's not working. So that, that can be a great asset for when you're when you're incorporating these additional asset classes into a portfolio. But like you said, the, the idea is just of the 12 by the six with the most momentum. And then it also has this concept of a crash protect, protection asset. And so the idea is if all 12 assets are 
have positive momentum, then we just buy the best six. As we start to have less than 12 that has positive momentum, we start to raise our cash position. And once we get where more than six of them don't have positive momentum, we now go 100% into this crash protection asset. And the crash protection asset is either intermediate term treasuries or, or a more short term thing, depending on which one of those has most, the most momentum. So the idea here is we're trying to buy asset classes that are going up. We're trying to take advantage of the principle of momentum. But then we also have this protection on the back end that if things go really bad, um, you know, this thing is going to begin to raise cash and, and potentially go all the way to cash. In the end, the odds are against the 60-40 portfolio producing the kinds of returns in the next decade that it did in the past one. But that doesn't mean that result is a certainty. For many investors, continuing to follow a stock and bond approach may continue to make sense. But there are risks to that approach. We hope this episode has helped you understand some of those risks and some options and ways to deal with them. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.